to my digital talk. Today's topic is the U.S. approach to China. My guest today is Rachel Rudolph. Let me introduce uh, Rachel very shortly. Dr. Rachel Rudolph uh, possesses more than 10 years in academia and the media. She served NGOs in the areas of humanitarian assistance and provided consultation to a variety of actors across the globe. In academia, she has have taught a range of courses focusing on foreign policy, intelligence, national security, and specialized in non-traditional security courses such as counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, human trafficking, refugees, and irregular migration. She presently lives and teaches in Zhuhai, China. Welcome, Rachel. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me to chat with you today. It's such a pleasure. I should also note that it's been a very, very long time since I've talked about politics in such a format. I think the last time was in 2012, back when I was living in Saudi Arabia. So let's hope that my rustiness does not show too much. Before we start, though, let me begin by telling your viewers that although I've lived in China now for almost two years and the Asia Pacific region since 2013, I'm not a China specialist. My area of specialty is strategic security. I've spent more than 10 years focused on studying and observing the use of violent and nonviolent tactics by state and non-state actors in the Middle East the mobilization of resistance movements and terrorist groups, and Saudi counterterrorism policy before transitioning my research to focus on the Asia-Pacific region. After my last Saudi project was complete, I focused exclusively on strategic security and non-traditional security in the Asia-Pacific region. My interest in and focus on China has been on U.S. security cooperation in the area of non-traditional security. I presently teach both traditional and non-traditional security issues for a joint program between Bryant University, which is located in Rhode Island, and Beijing, the Beijing Institute of Technology in Zhuhai. The views that I expressed here today, the research that has been done, are that of my own. Thank you for this clarification and for adding uh, these uh, interesting details to your biography, uh, dear Rachel. So let, let us start with the most interesting topic uh, from my perspective, uh, that is the strategic approach of the United States to China. Now, if we remember uh, last year, so the 2019 uh, was already, and this was prior to COVID-19, that, that's why I wanted to stress this, uh, was already marked by a certain shift in the strategic documents and strategic thinking of the U.S. authorities. Now, recalling um, the press conference by the U.S. Defense Secretary Esper, um, speaking to the press, he outlined a vision for the Pentagon. And if we look at this uh, press conference, it was one topic that was again and again mentioned, and it was China, China, China. And 
On the other side, of course, it was not just China-centric um, declaration, but it was also Indo-Pacific focus. Um, Esper, the Defense Secretary Esper, was not alone in this message. Um, the outgoing head of the U.S. Navy uh, was equally clear that his force has increased activity, specifically in the Indo-Pacific uh, region. Um, standing alongside Esper, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Dunford, also noted that the Pentagon has adopted a kind of a new global orientation in its contingency planning for threats coming from where? Now, on the one side, of course, is expected Russia, but adding to it, China. So, obviously, the paper by the White House that we are going to discuss, and this will be my first question to you, uh, the newly published paper by the White House um, is building on this 2019 National Defense, Defense Authorization Act um, and is outlining a certain U.S. approach to China, right? Now, I would like to ask you, what is your assessment based on these strategic documents? What is your assessment um, about this U.S. approach to China? What are the main um, findings? What are the key points from your perspective? So uh, please uh, analyze, analyze these um, strategic documents that I think seriously reflect a shift in, uh, in the strategic uh, thinking of U.S. towards the region, but also towards China, particularly. Yes, as you as you mentioned on May twentieth, um, to let your viewers know specifically on May twentieth. The Trump administration delivered to the U.S. Congress a report titled um, The U.S. Strategic Approach to, uh, to the People's Republic of China. The report itself outlines the administration's thinking and its approach to China, which it calls a competitive approach. The document, in my opinion, is important for two reasons. Um, first, uh, the previous administration did not explicitly outline a China policy. Second, it finally accepts and recognizes the U.S. relationship with the PRC to be one of great power competition. And I think that's that's really, really important. Um, and that, as you've highlighted, alluding to the different the press conferences, I mean, that's where the this administration has, has taken the U.S. itself. In the previous administration, it was recognized, but yet it wasn't accepted. It wasn't necessarily said publicly that the nature of the relationship between the two countries is one of, of great power competition. Um, so I think this document is important because it's, it's the first uh, government document that explicitly states and recognizes that it is now of great power competition. Um, what I'd also like, what I would like to do before we start talking about some um, some aspects of it or assessing the document itself, I'd like to spend um, uh, some time to go through some of the important highlights of the 16-page document, focusing specifically on the rationale for the approach, its aim, objectives, and key economic and security challenges and implementation. 
Now, I'm only going to focus on the economic and security challenges rather than the value-oriented challenges from the document, since they'll be relevant for later when we talk about NATO and the NATO BSEC members, okay? For the rationale, the administration argues that a new competitive approach is needed because of the policies of the past two decades has failed. Uh, it's it was commonly thought that deep engagement with China would lead to economic and political opening of the country, a more open society, and a government that behaved responsibly in international affairs. Instead, the administration argues China has exploited the free, open, and rules-based border to reshape the international system and transform global order, and it uses economic, political, and military power to coerce nation states. A competitive approach, the administration argues, will therefore help the U.S. to better, to better its, vital national in, uh, its vital national interests and as defined by the administration's national security strategy. The approach has about has two main objectives. The first is to improve the resiliency of U.S. institutions, alliances, and partnerships so that they can prevail against the challenges that China presents. And second, to compel China to cease or reduce actions that are harmful to U.S. national security interests, as well as those of its allies and partners. The document raises about eight economic challenges and those economic challenges include things like poor records of economic reform, state-driven protectionist policies, exploitation of WTO membership, distortion of global prices because of mass, massive industrial overcapacity, unfair advantages given to Chinese trade and investment firms, violation of intellectual property rights, cyber and economic espionage, use of the BRI to reshape international norms, standards and networks, and to coerce nations to tow uh, Beijing's political line. As I'll mention later, the, these economic challenges are similar to those which have been raised by some of NATO members, particularly those who argue that China is a non-traditional security threat to the alliance. There, are about, there were about five security challenges that were raised in the document. They include the use, and intimidate, use of intimidation and coercion to eliminate perceived political and security threats to its interests, provocative and coercive military and paramilitary activities in the Indo-Pacific region, military buildup that threatens the U.S. and allied interests and poses complex challenges to global commerce and supply chains, dual-use technologies that allow Beijing to suppress its population, China's national security law, allow, which allows secure, Chinese security services to access global information and communication through Chinese-owned companies such as Huawei and ZTD. These security challenges fall into the realm of non-traditional and hybrid security challenges. Again, some of them are similar to those that are raised by others, both within NATO and the EU. Now, Let's turn to implementation of this approach before I end with some of my main takeaways from the document. Uh, according to the administration, implementation requires cooperative engagement with multiple stakeholders. It defines those multiple stakeholders as uh, uh, US Congress, state and local government, private sector, civil society and academia, and foreign allies, partners, and international organizations. I wanna pause here for just a moment 
uh, before talking about some of the actions highlighted in the document, because the reference here suggests an intent to employ this approach or strategy unilaterally, bilaterally, and multilaterally. And I think this is important to emphasize because the Trump administration has pursued uh, um, uh, its foreign policy in many ways uh, unilaterally um, and bilaterally as opposed to as opposed to multilaterally. But this, the document in and of itself highlights um, the, a, a multilateral framework in which you can use um, all all three um, mechanisms for its implementation. So some of the things that are, um, some of the actions that are highlighted in, within it include identify and prosecute malign actors for theft, hacking, and economic espionage, which we see um, uh, that the administration acting on this already. Protect against malign investment in foreign threats, seeking to influence American policy. You see a lot of this with the creation of the, um, the, the in um, the CFOS, the um, already uh, next, responding to disinformation campaigns and promoting awareness of Beijing's failure to meet its international and treaty obligations, as well as in inconsistencies in its narrative. I think you see a lot more of Secretary Pompeo doing this aspect, um, calling out some of the inconsistencies that it perceives in the narrative. Um, uh, Next, preventing malign actors from accessing U.S. information networks. And again, here for the administration, you see this um, where, with in its bilateral discussions with countries attempting to, um, uh, attempting to, um, to uh, discourage their adoption of Huawei and ZTE. Uh, next, preventing counterfeit goods and halting substandard products from entering the U.S. market and countering China's provocative actions in the region, um, more specifically the Indo in the Indo-Pacific region, and use of coercion against um, American allies. So let me conclude this very long uh, answer with some, some of my main takeaways. First, the wording used to articulate the approach captured, captured some of the common sentiments among U US policymakers. Past approaches are no longer sufficient. Uh, there needs to be a new approach that better reflects strategic competition and engagement for relations between the two actors. And I want to highlight here the, the notion between strategic competition and engagement because one of the one of the aspects of the document is that it 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 opens the door to where we're not we're not the United States is not saying that there it doesn't want to engage. Um, it, even when the discussions about decoupling, it's not about disengagement from China, but rather engagement at a different level, engagement on an equal footing of, of major power competition. Um, next, the second main takeaway from this is that economic and security challenges raised, um, raised within the document are those that have been raised by the US Congress across party lines in previous administrations. This is going to be important when we think about actual implementation of the documentation and or the document uh, funding uh, for, uh, for U.S. foreign policy and um, U.S. Congress. The third document, I'm sorry, the third takeaway is that the document strategically captures all the ideological traditions within the U.S., with both U.S. policymakers and the public following to. This is important 
because strategic, strategic documents that transcend the political and ideological divides within the United States tend to have a stronger impact on US foreign policy direction than others, which means that um, the, the shift to strategic uh, competition uh, between the United States and China is likely to, to, to extend beyond this administration. And in fact, going back to uh, the Obama administration, it had, it had already began, it just was not formally recognized. Mm -hmm. The last the last takeaway here was that like the, uh, this administration's national security strategy and the national defense strategy, this document, this document highlights the administration's preference for maintaining strategic predictability while keeping open the door to the use of tactical unpredictability to meet its aims and objectives. And I think this, this administration has been really unique in this component when, when assessing um, not just policy towards China, but policy towards North Korea and in other areas, is attempting to maintain those strategic prin principles uh, with a policy in, in a particular area, but employing uh, unpredictability at the operational and tactical level. And so it's, this is just for, reinforces what was highlighted both in the, in, the, in the National Security Strategy document and NDS in that specific approach, that specific operational and tactical approach. Mm -hmm. Very interesting uh, indeed. A lot of insights uh, to be gained. Thanks to your analysis, dear Rachel. Now moving to, and you've mentioned already some key details, but I would like to uh, to to expand it a little bit, uh, considering the Trump uh, the Trump's administration. Now last week, uh, Trump held a very important news conference on how he actually described it on China, and uh, this conference actually marked. Uh, the end of a rather cautious uh, approach to Beijing in a sense that um, negotiations were um, were being held were being held on a trade agreement prior to COVID-19 so we have to we have to stress I think uh, also for the audience that uh, a lot of the issues were already on the agenda prior to COVID-19, and COVID-19 was a great accelerator um, of issues, but also exacerbated the bilateral relations to a great extent. So in this conference, also uh, on the, on the, uh, in this China, China conference, so to say, Trump basically marked an end to this rather cautious approach and openly addressed the issue China. Uh, he also, um, to a certain uh, extent, uh, addressed issues such as uh, visa restrictions on Chinese students, rather soft issues, but not unimportant for uh, long-term comprehensive relations between the first and the second major economic powers. Uh, so visa restrictions on Chinese students, or he also declared a withdrawal of the United States special status for Hong Kong as a separate trade and customs territory, uh, as well as uh, he also addressed a kind of an unspecified pledge to later sanction officials. 
So sanctions policy is something that we know actually from the U.S. relations uh, with uh, Russia. Uh, so no, not a new element in the in the in the U.S. approach to certain countries that are considered as being rivals or competitors, but certainly a new moment in the U.S. approach to China. And in this context, I would like to ask you what um, what in your view are the key um, elements of a so-called Trump's administration approach to China as compared to Obama's administration uh, approach to China. If we take this one mandate, we are not going to speculate whether Trump is going to win in another U.S. election or if not, what the next U.S. approach would be. Uh, for instance, by a Democratic candidate, but there is certainly a shift and you've outlined it with uh, your assessment on the strategic documents. So uh, could you give us uh, an idea about uh, these new elements also of the Trump's administration approach to China as seen from the last uh, few years? Yes, uh, before I talk, before I address that, um, let me, I want to say, I want to mention something, Be working in education and more specifically working in, um, in uh, for an, a joint American-Chinese program, uh, the visa restrictions, now the visa restrictions, because they, um, we should be careful when we talk about them, because they target specific universities and specific um, uh, specific disciplines that students are studying in. So, um, these, they're, they're most of the when many of the students that uh, that from China that go to the United States are studying business and other, and they're not going to be impacted at all. Um, so it, it is very specific. It's very targeted, um, which is very it is important because when we look at U.S. universities, Chinese students make up the major a majority of international students. Um, so it's not they're not only a, an important source of revenue, but it's also a good source of of people to people relations. It's a way in which we were able to maintain uh, level uh, the a nature of relations at, um, at uh, sub state level. Um, so uh, some of the other things, even in terms of sanctions, when you look at the way in which they're being used, those sanctions are also being used in a very targeted fashion. Um, more so, and in, in when we look at the, um, the Department of Treasury's use of sanctions, whether that's China or whether that's North Korea, you've, you've witnessed over the successive administrations become more targeted, more strategic in nature, um, so as not to cause uh, significant disruptions in, in um, our allies' uh, business or trade relationship with, with, with China itself. And, um, and so I think... The, uh, this is we can we can say this is an administration, but I would also bring it back to a lot of these things as I've highlighted with the new White House document. A lot of these things began in the previous administration, and this is because what we're talking about is we're talking about the bureaucracy, right? We're talking about or what some some analysts refer to as the blob. <laughs> there is some consistency to U.S. policy, and U.S. foreign policy is able to function. Because of the existence of that of that blob, um, not to, not that I'm I'm giving <laughs> props to it, but there's there's some there's it's important to highlight that fact because 
Um, it's not, it, it's not, this approach itself um, is not completely new. And, and, and so I, I really, really want to emphasize this because of the hyper-polarization that exists at the present in, in American politics. And those, those analysts, um, scholars and, and, gover and, and government officials that work within the bureaucracy, you know, they're, they're there regard it doesn't matter whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. Um, and so there's, there's some consistency in, uh, in that sort of. So now with that, let me now turn to uh, your question about um, sort of uh, this, the, the approach that's been put forward by the Trump administration as compared to um, the Obama administration. Uh, this, the administration's approach is, as I've mentioned, is similar in terms of its aims and objectives, which is why I started off with that. And even in terms of its open-ended framework for working either unilaterally or multilaterally for its, for its implementation. A big difference though, as I've already mentioned, is that there, no, there's, there was no articulated administrative uh, policy towards China. China was engaged bilaterally while also multilaterally through Obama's rebalance to Asia approach, but it did not articulate a specific policy approach toward China. Nonetheless, the, the approach that the Trump administration did articulate does have its roots in what has come before um, US, um, US policy, even before the Obama, Obama administration. There's some consistent consistencies going back to the Bush period. Another difference um, in the Obama is that the Obama administration went out of its way to avoid verbally confronting China. It, it preferred quiet diplomacy, um, and that was its preferred choice. Uh, the Trump administration, on the other hand, uses confrontation as a tactic to bring attention to specific issues, which ends up mobilizing debate within Washington and Beijing. Uh, and I know some scholars go back and forth and, and some analysts go back and forth about um, the, the use of, of Twitter uh, or Trump's use of Twitter, um, the videos that uh, Secretary of State Pompeo does uh, talking about specific issues. Um, but at the same time, it, you have, if we you compare the nature of facilitating debate, there has been more debate um, on, on key critical issues in this, in this administration than in the past. Now, talking about the issues and actually sitting down and resolving the issues is a different matter. But talking about them is important because in the past administrations under Bush and Obama, the, the US government officials attempt to tiptoe around certain ones because of, of thinking that, that it would bring an end to uh, either cooperation on another key area like North Korea, or or not, or um, uh, bring an end at, to um, the the nature of dialogue itself. So the confrontational component has been one of the things that has made made, and it's done tactically, has made this administration different. Um, at times, though. The, the, the administration or key, key administration officials use of that um, has, um, has resulted in fostering um, more tension, rising to the point that makes dialogue on some issues almost impossible. 
Another way that I see them as being different is the importance given to multilateralism under the Obama administration versus the Trump administration. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, this administration you've seen more so is, is pursuing a unilateral and bilateral approach before multilateral. It almost, it almost seems as if a multilateral approach is pursued as a last resort. But that it, it also depends on how we're, how we're looking at this, whether it's we're looking at dialogue with um, dialogue at the um, at a working level or whether we're looking at dialogue between high level at, at a high level. Uh, so there, there is very, there is variation in it. Um, the Trump administration has been um, more willing to go alone, as was mentioned, not fearing to raise tension to the brink before taking a few steps back. Unfortunately, though, that abrasive, the abrasive way in which President Trump himself has publicly addressed leaders can com has complicated the administration's ability to work within a multilateral framework simply because others are hesitant to work with the U.S., particularly given the inconsistency between policy positions and actual policy and actual behavior. And I think you see this um, in, in Europe, which you could speak to more about that, um, where uh, you see uh, traditional Euro European allies to the U.S. taking a step back from the administration because of not just the abrasiveness in the way in which policy issues are presented, but then also um, the, the the inconsistency in, in in action itself, or meaning meaning saying doing saying going to say you're going to do one thing, but then actually doing another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is a good transition to my next question because you've mentioned the European allies, and I would like also to touch upon the NATO's approach to China. So uh, last summit, the London summit in December 2019 was of particular importance uh, for the allies uh, on both sides both sides of the atlantic uh, because it marked also the alliance's uh, 70th uh, anniversary and as expected uh, china was put on the agenda so uh, secretary general uh, jens soltenberg stressed the need for NATO to fully recognize the country's growing influence in Europe, in Africa, and uh, the Arctic. This was actually one part of the discussion. Um, so the London Declaration spoke of opportunities and challenges in the relation to China. And for the first time, also, the Public's Republic was characterized as a potential strategic threat to the West. Um, the stress is put on potential, uh, and I'm just laying out the once again the strategic uh, document uh, and the discussion about it. So it's obvious that, in particular, the United States has been pressing for, uh, you know, for certain uh, for certain shift also in uh, the discussion in the debate. Uh, between uh, the transatlantic allies, um, allies uh, on China. Um, but on the other side, if you look back to the history of uh, the alliance, it is this organization that actually has the experience in dealing with uh, strategic rival. Um, in the past, this was Soviet Union. Now, it is, there is a certain potential 
for a new kind of a global uh, power competition. And it, this is already mentioned in the strategic documents, as you said. Uh, but uh, having in mind that NATO is probably one of these uh, organizations from the Cold War era that really has the tools, not just the understanding, but also the tools to deal with this kind of uh, comprehensive um, uh, rival, um, having the capacities, uh, the abilities, the capabilities actually uh, in uh, to be operative in many various fields. Uh, I think that uh, this is just the beginning for uh, for NATO to to dis to discuss the topic China um, within internal circles. Now, my question to you is um, regarding NATO specifically. What do you think are really the possible opportunities and challenges that Beijing currently presents in the international relations from a NATO perspective? perspective. Could you speculate a little bit as to how, um, and also point to probably already existing, existent discussions within the transatlantic community uh, when it comes to these opportunities and challenges coming from uh, Beijing uh, from a NATO perspective? What I'd like to do is I, I want to get to, I want to talk in this context to answer that, I want to talk about the debates. Before I do that, though, I want to go back to the London Declaration, um, which you mentioned. And, and I think this is, I think uh, the London Declaration is really important. And it really highlights the, um, the ambiguous language within the document itself highlights the debates that are going on, on inside internally into to NATO. Now let me let me let me qualify before I begin this because I am not a, a NATO specialist. I do not focus on NATO. Um, this uh, our project, our joint project, is is what is taking me into European security. <laughs> I um, prior to that have focused on security in the Middle East and security in the Asia Pacific region. So I'm coming at this from the from outside in. So to try to get a better grasp of sort of, of the nature of the debates, because it's really in the debates where we, we need to look at to see where there can be a meeting of the minds in, in policy and, and in strategy and how to go forward. So uh, there, are some, there are some striking uh, components to the, the declaration itself that I found interesting when thinking about the um, the document that we talked that we started the, the, our our talk today with, which um, is the the White House approach. So, what it, um, as you've highlighted in the uh, the declaration that uh, it it was unique and significant in that the the alliance members recognized that China's growing influence in international policy uh, international policies present both opportunities and challenges that the alliance needs to address. But the declaration itself did not highlight the specific challenges of China to the alliance. Instead, challenges NATO faces, faces were discussed more broadly without reference to a specific state actor except for Russia. Some of the, some of the issues or challenges that were raised in the declaration include, of course, Russia's aggressive actions, terrorism, state and non-state actors who challenge the rule-based international order. Now think back to some of the, some of the challenges raised in the, the White House document. 
in um, the, the Trump administration highlighting the, that China as being um, presenting a challenge to the rules-based order. Uh, referencing instability and irregular migration, cyber and hybrid threats, uh, security of critical infrastructure, communications and energy, and then uh, human security. Now, I want to pause on this since I not just I teach on on non-traditional security, but also because I want to say that that human security is going to be particularly important in the post-COVID period. I think we're gonna, we're gonna hear a lot more discussion about human security and the impact of human insecurity on those hybrid security threats, the combined traditional and non-traditional security threats. I also think that this is an area in human security where NATO could find some common ground with China for strategic security dialogue. And this, this is also on my mind because of one of the recommendations that Ian Brzezinski made in his recent article for the Atlantic Council, which I'll, I'll uh, mention later. However, but I first want um, to highlight these um, this, some specific challenges that some analysts have uh, raised regarding, um, uh, regarding China. Specifically, um, analysts have mentioned uh, the heavy investment in European infrastructure and, and cyberspace, ownership of major European ports, which are critical to NATO operations. And I also add here um, something that um, I had found when I was uh, researching the BSEC countries uh, and, and some of the concerns that were raised by the BSEC countries was the, um, the dual use capacity uh, for some of the ports um, for some of the, uh, where uh, Chinese companies have purchased or managing um, particular ports. Uh, security of communications, including 5G and unease with Huawei building mobile networks, cyber and economic espionage and intellectual property theft, uh, China's growing partnership with Russia, uh, and more specifically, it's growing partnership in the areas of energy, telecommunications and military relations. Uh, threats to boycott companies and countries that criticize policies and the leveraging of debt instruments against pure, uh, poor nations, and maritime claims and aggressive activities in the South and East China Seas. Again, if we think back to the challenges raised in the U.S. strategic document, there, there are commonalities. The challenges also highlight the debate among NATO members, which is similar to a debate among U.S. policymakers, which is whether China poses a direct traditional security challenge to the alliance. Most argue no, that it doesn't prove it does not possess a, a direct traditional security challenge, but rather it poses a, a non-traditional security challenge to the alliance. The alliance members who view China as non-traditional security threat argue that the growing economic dependence of the countries within the alliance threatens cohesion among member states. It hinders NATO's ability to conduct future operations and opens the door to the use of soft power to indirectly influence outcomes in multilateral institutions such as the EU. Those in the opposing camp argue that China is not per se a threat and that the economic challenges are not within the purview of the alliance's mandate. Here, I thought this that, that was fascinating. Um, and I think there are two issues that are being raised in this debate. The first 
is there are members who do not want to define China as a security threat, even if it's only being considered as a non-traditional security one. The second is related to the larger debate on the types of security challenges that should be the focal point within the NATO mandate. Also, non-traditional security challenges are touchy national security issues that raise nationalistic tensions when they are a focus by regional or, or international organizations. Today, though, with COVID, many of the voices claiming that China poses a non-traditional security challenge, not threat, but a challenge, have been elevated in the policy circles. I point to um, Mark Leonard of the European Council on Foreign Relations in, his, uh, in one of the articles that he most recently writ wrote, um, which, he, um, which I think is useful for uh, others to read. He makes the case that Europeans should be more insulated from the whims of unreliable, and I'm quoting here, okay? I'm gonna I'll make sure I emphasize that this is a quote, that Europeans should be more insulated from the whims, whims of unreliable or overbearing governments, whether in Beijing or Washington, D.C. So I think that's important because when we think about, uh, when we think about the, the nature of the declaration, the ambiguous language, the debates that, that are taking place, um, I, it suggests that there is going to be, there, it's going to be a lot harder than, than many would think to get um, a, a, a common document, a common policy document on um, NATO's policy towards China. I do think that eventually that there will be a NATO policy towards China. But I, I think it's going to be um, it's going to it's going to take a lot longer than um, than what uh, than what uh, some of the some actors are anticipating. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, your recent research on uh, flexi economic uh, cooperation countries. Um, let me just um, point to this um, article for those who would be interested in reading it. It's called NATO, China and the BSEC 4, Turkey, Romania, Bulgaria and Albania. Albania and uh, it can be found uh, it's freely available and can be found on the web page of the new york center for foreign policy affairs uh, or just go to the twitter account of rachel or mine and we can also gladly forward this article and in this article you also uh, basically um, assess uh, the current relations of these countries with uh, China. Uh, now, these countries are NATO members, but then again, uh, it's a very interesting geostrategic area. Uh, the Black Sea Economic Cooperation encompasses countries that are NATO members or European Union members or European Union member candidates. And it's also... Um, uh, is centered actually at a very geostrategic uh, hotspot that is between uh, geographically seen between the European Union, uh, Turkey and Russia. So it's going to witness a lot of dynamics, a lot of uh, geopolitical and geoeconomic uh, issues uh, in the future, just as it was the case in the last several centuries. Um, without going into specifics, um, the question I would like to ask you in this regard, just to let you um, touch upon these uh, issues, is how exactly 
you would would you would you assess china's economic and security relations with these particular countries like i said uh, it's very interesting case because they are also nato members and uh, in a more broader context do you think that there are actually different approaches uh, by the nato members um and if that's the case what exactly is the diverging line between uh, NATO members when it comes to their view on China? Very good. Um, let me start in reverse because I want to start with the diverging because then I can I want to start with the, the diverging line because I think that's really really important, um, particularly for um, the Black Sea. And when we think about the the previous question on opportunities, I think for NATO. And for the Europe and for the European Union, when thinking of European Union security, I think that's going to be the perfect region to actually um, find uh, find areas of cooperation, and uh, where where China can be uh, more there has, has opportunities to offer both NATO and and uh, the EU, um, and doesn't pose as many uh, security or I should say as many um, challenges, not just security challenges, but challenges. Um, so within, uh, there seems to be, when we look within um, within the uh, sort of the, the two debates, there seems to be two points of divergence within the members. Uh, there are on whether NATO should have a China policy and on how to address the challenges that China poses to the alliance. Given the COVID environment, I think the post-COVID uh, period will witness the, uh, the development of a NATO-China policy, which I've already mentioned. As, in, as for addressing the challenges and the type of mechanisms for that, I, I, as again, as, as I mentioned, I'm not a NATO specialist, so I don't, ha I hesitate to offer my recommendations. This mm -hmm. is where I want to talk about Ian Brzezinski. Uh, he, and he recently added his voice to some of the other calls by analysts for establishment of a NATO-China council in an, in an article that he wrote for the Atlantic Council, which just was just released just the other day. He proposed the creation of a center for excellence and a small military headquarters to be established in Indo-Pacific in order for NATO members to have a better understanding of the region. Having lived in the Asia Pacific for seven years, I think the NATO China Council and the establishment of a center of excellence is a great idea. He suggests that Beijing might not be open to the NATO China Council. I think, the, however, I think the government might be open to that, particularly given that Foreign Minister Wang Yi recently said that China welcomes dialogue with NATO, um, and more specifically, welcomes NATO uh, welcomes dialogue with NATO. On an on an equal on, on equal footing, uh, as uh, so as I've said before, there are some common grounds for strategic security dialogue between the two, and I think that it's in the wider Black Sea when we look at the nature of China's economic and security relations with those countries, and so that's why I focused in that piece more specifically on the four NATO countries. And as you know, for the other, for our project, I have focused on, uh, I, I've covered all of the 11, um, with minus Russia, because um, that's in a separate section, um, all 11 BSEC countries uh, with that. And I grouped them into two different areas, the NATO area, then the Guam area, and then the other. Um, <laughs> and so the, there was really, it was, it was fascinating in looking at, when we look at the patterns across those, um, and this again reinforces why I said I'm, I'm really excited 
that the wider Black Sea has the potential to be an area of opportunity for China and, and, and NATO uh, and, and the European Union. So with that, let me focus, let me talk about um, the, the, the four countries um, individually, and then I want to do sort of a little bit of a cross-case analysis and then come back to some of the things um, with uh, regarding that, that Ian Brzezinski had highlighted within the, about the creation of a center for excellence. So first, as um, many of your viewers may be aware, China and Turkey first uh, established their relationship in, the in 1971. There was a gradual increase of the nature of economic and security relations beginning in the 1980s. Their relationship was elevated in 2013 to a strategic partnership but the strategic part of their relationship is limited to economic relations, which consists primarily of trade and investment. They trade primarily in manufacturing, industrial, consumer, and agricultural goods. The manufacturing goods make up the most of the imports. The total imports began to decline in 2017, while the volume of exports remained the same. Industrial goods are mostly are the, the goods that are mostly exported from Turkey to China. And the trade imbalance, um, just like uh, with the other countries, uh, it has been a, uh, not just a point of contention, but it also favors uh, China. In terms of investment, China has provided Turkey with loans for some of the infrastructural projects, such as the metro lines. It supported its request for funding in the Trans-Anatolia na Natural Gas pipeline project. It invested in Turkey's logistics, telecommunications, and manufacturing, and conducted currency swaps and signed banking agreements. In military and security relations, uh, China has the most extensive uh, security relations with Turkey than with, with the other countries uh, that uh, focus here. Uh, more specifically, it, their relationship consists of high to low level personnel exchanges, limited military training exercises, weapons sales and assistance with Turkey's development of weapons and space capabilities, security and intelligence cooperation, and commitments made for cooperation on non-traditional security threats. Now turning to Romania, Sino-China-Romanian relations have evolved since they were first established in 1949, but there have been significantly higher levels of economic and security cooperation in the Cold War period and more economic cooperation than security cooperation in the post-Cold War period. Economic relations between the two countries consist of trade and manufacturing, industrial, consumer goods and investment, and investments in energy, industry, real estate, transport, infrastructure, and telecommunications. Manufacturing goods were the top imports. Um, the imports increased since, have increased since 2013 with there being a significant jump in trade between 2017 and 2018 and a slight decline in 2019. Maybe, let me pause here for just a second because you may be wondering why am I emphasizing the start date of um, the, the, the nature of the increase in their imports and um, as well as their exports. And this is because what I was really looking at, it was because in 2013, as everyone's aware, that's when the BRI policy was, initi uh, was initiated. And so I wanted to see what is in the fact that do we in fact see an increase in, 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 in trade relations as well as investment in that period, in the, in the BRA period. And in fact, across the cases, you do, you do see that. You then just, you see fluctuations in between, 
Um, but then also they most of them um, in terms of imports and, and exports have a, another increase in around seven, on the years of 2017 and 18. Um, now going back to going back to Romania, uh, the the industrial goods are the top exports. Exports have experienced more fluctuation in their levels. What's important to note, though, is that they experienced also an increase in 2013. Chinese investments in the country target energy, industry, infrastructure, real estate, the information technology, and communication. Again, I want to pause here and talking about investments because. What I was looking for here was the nature of uh, were, the, were Chinese investments diversified? Is there is there diversification? Because I was thinking, well, if there's diversification, well, then we can really assess whether or not uh, China's the nature of China's relationship is actually uh, a, an economic security challenge for not just NATO but those countries itself. And and as I'll talk about once I get to um, doing the cross case analysis. That in fact the, the the investments themselves are diversified in the in the BSEC region and, and among the NATO countries itself, thus um, allowing us to make the assumption that they're not uh, that the nature of China's trade and um, and security relations with those countries do not per se um, um, pose a an economic security threat. Um, military and security relations between the, uh, these two countries consists primarily of high-level military to military and security personnel contact, bilateral, uh, limited bilateral training exercises, and cooperation in US, UN peacekeeping operation, missions. Now again, for let me pause here. For, I was, when I was looking at military and security relations, what I really wanted to be able to understand was the, because of the concern with um, the uh, espionage and, and, and all of that, I wanted to be able to see what is the nature of the, the security relationship and, and does, does China actually pose a, 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 a hybrid security challenge to not just uh, to the individual countries, but then also to, um, to the region itself. Um, mm -hmm. Now, when we, when we look at Bulgaria, the Bulgarian-China uh, relations were first established in 1949, and they've, they've remained cordial until the 1980s, which is when the first set of cooperative agreements were signed. In 2019, relations were upgraded to a strategic partnership. Economic and military and security relations have remained minimal in relation to China's relations with larger, wealthier European countries and non-EU member states, um, despite the upgrade. And just, and uh, and I would note that Bulgaria is a country that has preferred um, to uh, would like to have better relations with China. Uh, um, economic relations consist of trade and manufacturing, industrial and consumer goods, and investment in agricultural business, energy, media technology, and transport infrastructure. The manufacturing goods are the top are top imports and exports. Uh, imports saw an increase in 2013 and 14, some fluctuation between 2015 and 17, a significant increase in 2018. Exports also increased in 2013 and a gradual decline in 2014 and 16. Military and security relations consist primarily of military to military high level dialogue and exchanges. In Albania, um, the relations have fluctuated over the years um, since they were first established. Um, I won't go through the, the period of, of when they had um, formally ended relations, but uh, the, uh, the relationship um, today has, has improved. 
the relationship consists of economic relations, and they don't have a sec military or security relationship, nor have either, neither has either party um, indicated their desire to create a military or security relationship. Their economic relations consist primarily of trade and consumer, manufacturing, industrial and agricultural goods, and investment in agriculture and energy and transportation infrastructure. Manufacturing goods are both the top imports and exports, and the trade imbalance favors China. Um, just like the other ones, uh, the imports gradually uh, increased during the in the in the post two thousand thirteen period. Now, when I look across those cases, um, and also I'll, I'll add what's not I didn't discuss in that article was um, in relation to the the, the larger BSEC region. So when we look at the, look at these countries in relation to the other BSEC countries, we find that China trades more with the NATO BSEC members than the other original uh, regional groupings like Guam. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with that, Guam stands for uh, the uh, regional organizations uh, comprising of Georgia, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, and Moldova. Uh, with the NATO BSEC group, Turkey's the dominant trade partner. Manufacturing make goods make up the bulk of its goods um, traded with the entire group, uh, and they are followed by consumer and agricultural products. Second, Chinese investments are diversified across the BSEC countries, with there being more, even more diversification in investments among the NATO BSEC members. Among the NATO BSEC members, transport infrastructure and energy are the two top sectors for investment. But what's really interesting when looking at the nature of transport and energy, when you think of um, Europe, because you think about the nature of the um, uh, European, um, more specifically the EU's dependence on Russia for energy, and the, the Black Sea region as an alternative energy source or for energy diversification within that. And so China has targeted the infrastructure in that capacity um, to be able to help to faci um, facilitate energy production. And more specifically, I should say, it's alternative, alternative energy that it's most of its investments have been in as opposed to your traditional um, investments. And so I, um, going to when you think of the nature of comp the type of energy that uh, Russia exports, versus energy within the region, there wouldn't, you don't necessarily see the potential for, um, for competition, or, or I should say conflict, not competition, but conflict um, in, with Chinese investments in, in alternative energies. And the transport infrastructure, there's two, there was really fascinating when looking at the investments in the transport infrastructure, because it's not just looking, um, targeting the energy, but then also for shipment of goods. Um, and which highlights the importance of the growing importance of the European market for China's uh, China's economic growth. Uh, then, um, and so I think it's just, again another uh, is important when looking at that. But then when you think about the nature of the diversification of it, you know, the, I mean, outside of transport and infrastructure, the other areas of investments are agriculture, telecommunication business, manufacturing, real estate, telecommunications, logistics, media, and technology. But none of these, the investments themselves have been significantly smaller than Chinese investment in, in the, the other, the other, the stronger or more dominant EU countries. Um, so that, I think that's, that's important to highlight um, when we're thinking about whether or not China is uh, perceived as a threat um, in that regard. 
Um, third, China's military and security relations among the BSEC, BSEC members are not extensive except for its relations with Turkey. They're primarily defined by training exercises, weapon sales and assistance, and personal exchanges, contact and dialogue. So your traditional military to military relations when attempting to, to assess them. Um, fourth, China's relations with NATO BSEC members do not pose a national security threat um, to NATO, in, in my opinion, when looking at the nature of the relationship. And, um, so this uh, is quite an extending research and I'm really looking forward to the next publications based on what you've uh, just outlined. Uh, for a short version, like I said, um, the audience, audience can go to the article on the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs webpage, NATO China and the BSEC4. Um, so given, this, um, given these insights, and given these findings, what does that actually mean for the debates uh, within NATO and Europe? Uh, and you mentioned also the European, uh, the European uh, counterparts um, on how to approach China in a post-COVID-19 uh, context. And coupled with that, my final question, because uh, we actually already uh, reached the 60 minutes format, but I'm eager to hear your opinion on these final questions, is uh, what do you expect is going to be likely the reality in the post-COVID-19 period uh, regarding U.S.-China relations? Let me start with the first one um, in terms of the debates, um, the findings in the debates. I think, the as I mentioned, the wider Black Sea region is an excellent area for where both NATO and Europe can find some common ground with China. Beijing's trade and investment is not per se a threat to the alliance or even to European security when we break down the different types of goods that are traded. So if, if, if when I went through the, um, the agriculture, consumer, manufacturing, if you actually break them down, You'll, you'll, you're able to see more specifically why I said that um, it's not per se, uh, it, that China doesn't per se um, pose a threat um, to, uh, to both the alliance and European security. The diversification of its investments suggests that there's little threat, um, meaning, uh, uh, and, that, and then more specifically, that you're not likely to see Beijing influencing their behavior. On this note, and this is where I want to come back to um, the, the center, um, center for Excellence. Um, there have been few studies outside of the outside of the region that look at the use of economic coercion or economic statecraft to directly influence politics. Um, but they have not been comprehensive and instead been more on single case studies. We can't draw broad sweeping generalizations from single case studies. Ultimately, there must there. There just simply is not enough case cross case studies to adequately say that Be that Beijing um, is is using economic coercion and economic statecraft to be able to influence their political decisions um, outside. And uh, but, that, but we have to because, like I said, there are there are some single cases. But whether or not this this is uh, it's being done in the context of economic statecraft, we don't just don't have enough case studies and data to be able to say whether or not um, confidently that is the case. 
Um, my concern is that the, in the present environment, particularly with heightened U.S. tensions, that actors will utilize the period uh, in order to potentially uh, push agendas or to propose policies that are short rather than long-term oriented. NATO is a unique organization, and it needs to look at and propose policies for the, for the long term. And given the debates, I think that NATO itself is going to, it, it's, um, it's going to take time for NATO to be able to develop a long-term policy towards China. But I, again, it, it, it looks because of the convergence of the debates in the post-COVID period. I think, you're, again, as I mentioned previously, you're going to have a NATO-China policy. Um, going back to what Brzezinski had suggested, a center of excellence in the region could help to fill the information gap and facilitate dialogue on both the opportunities and challenges that China poses to NATO. So now, taking this to wrap this up and looking back at the nature of U.S.-China relations in a post-COVID period, I think that a competitive, cooperative approach is here to stay. And the reason you notice that I changed that there, because, you know, then um, in Washington, the, the strategic document specifically says the competitive approach. But when you actually read the text of it, it has... The, in there that um, the nature of, of, facility, of co working on cooperating with Beijing on areas of mutual interest. And so I think we're, we're back to the, it's, it's the competitive cooperative approach. Um, but what really is going to, what is really going to is the hallmark and the actual change itself is the recognition that um, Beijing is, that the nature of, of our relationship is one of great power competition, which is significant because the past administrations have not recognized Beijing at that. And so it's, it's basically, if we go back to President Xi's speech on, on international relations and major power relations, it's basically saying, okay, we accept now that, um, that, that this is, is one of, of major power competition. Um, domestic politics and the economy, I think, are going to be the focal point for both countries in the immediate uh, post-COVID environment. At the same time, I think they'll both need to find a way to cooperate multilaterally, even if independently, in order to stabilize the global economy. And I think you see some of this in the, in, in the present COVID period, right? You see, um, because although it would have been more ideal, like in the past administration, I think you would have been able to have um, China and the United States um, working hand in hand in order to, to address the global needs as a result of, of COVID. But um, now what you see at the end of this period, you see both, both countries working in, in a multilateral framework, but independently from one another. And I think that we're going to see more of that. And I think you're going to see not just, you're going to see, again, in that dynamic, you're going to see the cooperation and competition um, imbued in, in, in all policy actions. Um, mm -hmm. I suspect that there are going to be more tense moments in U.S.-China relations, regardless of who wins the election, whether it's Trump or whether it's it's Biden. I think that, uh, and again, to, to be able, the reason I base this is because when we think about the nature of sanctions, uh, when we think about some uh, human rights, that's, that's those, are, those are traditional foreign policy uh, issues that Congress leads more on than the White House. Um, and so there's there's a congressional component in in this and the nature of the relationship that is going to um, to, to continue driving some specific issues 
um, regardless. I think if, if it's a um, Biden as opposed to Trump, you may see less of that confrontational approach that has been um, prevalent within the, within the Trump administration. But I still think you're, the, the, the nature, the, the shift in and of itself has been solidified uh, in, in, the, in our relationship. I believe that China is going to focus more on Europe in the near future and working toward bettering its relations with the European Union. Although the U.S. relationship still remains Beijing's most important bilateral relationship, I think it recognizes right now, particularly in the lead up and the aftermath of the U.S. elections, there will be little that can be done to improve relations and um, business and people to people relations between the U.S. and China will remain strong despite the tension. And I believe Beijing realizes their importance for bettering U.S. and China relations in the long term. And you see this, think back, think just to what has occurred in the last couple of days, um, where with U.S. banning um, Chinese, uh, Chinese airlines to the U.S. And, and rather than a tit-for-tat action, Beijing it says, okay, um, what, we're not, we're not, we're, we won't do the same thing. Um, so I think that um, to reinforce that, that point there, I think Beijing realizes that um, it's, going, it, it's going to focus its attention right now on, on the Europe, as opposed to focusing on in, in bettering relations with, with the United States. It doesn't mean that they're, that it's gonna, they're not gonna be dialogue, there's not going to be movement and trade. Um, I believe that the Trump administration will attempt before the election period to, to move forward with, um, with trade negotiations between the two countries. Now, obviously, there is going to be a further debate on both sides of the Atlantic uh, in the United States, but also in Europe, uh, when it comes to the future relationship with China. On this side of the Atlantic here in Europe, already in 2019, uh, the European Commission outlined in its strategic outlook that China is um, economic uh, competitor, a cooperation partner, an economic competitor, and a strategic rival all together. So it's a very multifaceted um, approach, so to say. And obviously, from what you've uh, been outlining for the based on the strategic documents uh, in the United States, but also based on your research, uh, on your recent research, there are challenges. And the sum of these challenges might result in a kind of a potential strategic threat scenario coming from China, but it also might create synergies and new opportunities for a new kind of a cooperation relationship. So it's quite open on both sides and in both directions. And we should be very realistic about it. And we should try not to go into, you know, solely into the one direction, risking uh, to use the opportunities and uh, neglecting actually uh, potential opportunities. But we should also be very realistic or as the last paper by the White House stresses, it's a um, it's a new kind of a pragmatic, pragmatic realism uh, approach, uh, which I think that the, some of the European member states will also apply in their relations with China. Dear Rachel, thank you very much for taking the time to touch upon all of these issues. And I wish you good luck with uh, your further research on these topics. And I 
warmly thank you for being with me in the, the last 17 minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.